Hey everybody, Cheryl Todd here from Gun for Freedom Radio, and I am super excited to have had a, an ex just a unique opportunity lately, recently, to sit down in a workshop, a classroom, with the two guests that I have on today. Um, there was a couple of other people there, but um, we weren't able to connect with them, so we are going to just kind of launch in with Michael Sodini. He's the founder of Walk the Talk America, WTTA, a nonprofit that funds research and development for outreach and promotion of mental health to reduce the misconceptions and prejudices that exist when it comes to mental illness and firearms. The WTTA team believes that they can be a catalyst for change by working with experts in the mental health industry. Welcome, Michael. Thanks for having me, Cheryl, and thanks for uh, attending the workshop uh, last week. So that was awesome. Oh, it just honestly blew me away. I uh, can't wait to dive into this conversation also with Jake Wiskirchen. Pretty How close. You... Close? <laughs> Wiskirchen. Wiskirchen. Okay, I even practiced that. Is <laughs> um, the co-founder co-owner and chief clinical officer at Zephyr Wellness, a mental health outpatient practice in Northern Nevada. Jake and the mental health professionals at Zephyr take pride in finding non-traditional approaches to bringing help to those who seek help. And I believe that this uh, cultural competency, cultural uh, awareness kind of workshop that you gentlemen uh, brought together in, in Reno, Nevada last week is, I mean, the perfect example of something that's non-traditional and that nobody else is doing. Welcome to the program, Jake. Thanks, Cheryl. I appreciate it. And I think that when we talk about what, you know, what non-traditional means, I mean, our, our tagline is innovative and philanthropic. And I think this fits both of those uh, premises, innovative meaning we're doing something nobody's ever done before, and philanthropic in that we're partnering with Walk Talk America to keep costs down so that our clinicians as well as the community can learn about whatever it is that we're bringing to them. We do a lot more in the community too, and I can talk about that if you'd like. Absolutely. So um, just to bring folks up to speed, uh, the, the people missing are Rob Pincus, who is one of the board members of WTTA and a firearms expert who was at the class, and then the uh, owners of the Reno Guns and Range that hosted this event. And I, um, being able to interact with, this is a, a woman-owned uh, gun range, gun store and gun range. Her son uh, was very interactive with the, the workshop, the class that we attended. And uh, I was so impressed with what a, what a sense he had for the, the need for this cultural awareness type workshop. Um, and the input that he offered. Because for me, I occupy sort of an, a unique space in this firearms industry. My degrees are in psychology, but we, my husband and I own uh, AZ Firearms, a gun store. Uh, and then we have this radio show. Uh, and, but to listen to uh, the owner of Reno Guns and Range, I was really impressed with, you know, as far as I know, he doesn't have any degrees in psychology, but he seemed to really understand uh, his 
his customer base and some of the issues out there. So I, I thank both of them for what they uh, brought to the table and it is unfortunate that they couldn't join us on this recording. Um, so just quickly, uh, Michael, if you could take a second and just kind of bring us up to speed on um, how did you assemble this workshop that we uh, had an opportunity to enjoy the other night? Well, I would say there's two steps to it. The first one was this book uh, by Pirelli. It's the behavioral science of firearms. Um, it deals with the mental health perspective of guns, suicide, and violence. Uh, it's a Bible. It, uh, and I think Jake can attest to this. This has been our Bible for the last year. Uh, because when we first looked into this whole concept and Rob and I were working hard to find something to reference, uh, that's what we found. And inside there, Pirelli makes some good recommendations about how to kind of bridge the gap between mental health professionals and people in the 2A community. You know, so we, we had the idea in our head. And then I ended up on Jake's show, which is called Noggin Notes. Um, and we, I think the connection was through um, the owner of Reno Guns and Range. Am I right, Jake? Like, yeah, yeah. Just to be clear, uh, so Debbie Block owns Reno Guns and Range, and her son Jordan Slotnick manages it. He's the general manager. Jordan and I go back seventeen years or something like that, and uh, we were just rapping about different ways we can connect uh, the, the firearms community and the mental health community in some sort of meaningful way. And he said, "Have you ever heard of Walk to Talk America?" And I said, "No." And he said, check him out. So I, I checked it out and I sent an email to Walk the Talk American. It turns out it was you who responded and uh, we were off and running after that. Yeah. So I, I joined the show. Um, Jake and I got along. Uh, we just kept in touch. And the more we talked, the more we understood that we both have a drive to give back to the community. Um, you know, I always say this. A lot of the stuff we do, we do it for free. Um, there's not a lot of people that would, would put the time and energy that both Jake and I and Rob Pincus, um, you know, we're, it's about making earth better. It's about making the community better. And that was a great thing is like, when I said to Jake, like, what if we did this? Because now I have a mental health professional that wants to actually work. Um, just like I have Rob Pincus, who's a firearms expert that wants to work for something good. Uh, so I put the three of us, you know, we kind of like, we were like, Hey, why don't we do it in Reno? You know, and obviously being connected by Reno guns and range, uh, it worked out perfectly. So that's how we got here. Uh, you know, we took Pirelli's idea and we actually made something of it, an actual course. That's wonderful. Um, so Jake, can you kind of talk to us about who were the attendees at at this and this was the the inaugural this was like the first pancake right like let's see what it looks and feels and sounds like um but so often the first pancake is a little bit wonky this was not at all from my experience wonky i thought it was very well thought out and presented but who were the attendees i appreciate you saying that i think uh for for us uh who pulled it off we we have some, we have a bit of cleanup to do. There was a bit of a timing issue. We wanted three hours. We ended up going a little long because there's just boundless content to cover. So uh, what it did is it gave us great feedback on what the next installment is gonna look like. But our, our we have two prongs that we wanna attack here. One is the mental health community, which is my people, the, the clinicians who, who do the treatment. Um, and that was our first 
target group. And so the people who attended this time around, we had we had 14 sign up and uh, 11 attended. And the, the, the ones who were missing had very, very good personal reasons for missing. So I, I anticipate them coming back again. But we had 14 sign up. That was our capacity. It was 14. Uh, so it filled up very quickly. And they were all clinicians except for you, actually. You were the only non-clinician to attend. And I appreciate your attendance because we got some great feedback from you, too. So the idea is that uh, these clinicians who have, who, you know, possess master's level degrees and uh, licenses from the state of Nevada would get continuing education toward their license renewal for attending this class. Now, we all have uh, continuing education credits to do annually. Usually, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 per year. So for every hour of contact, you get one credit. This would be three credits. And this education was designed to develop cultural competence of the firearms community because too often we in the mental health profession don't understand uh, and or are willfully ignorant of the firearms community. And yet we've got about roughly 50 percent of America based on a peer research poll from a year and a half ago that suggests people either own a gun or live with somebody who owns a gun. So that's roughly 50 percent of our clientele who could be walking in the door and is frankly skittish about what counseling entails and whether or not we're gonna suddenly pick up the bat phone to call CPS because they have kids and guns in the home because we're ignorant of what that means or that they could possibly lose their gun rights because they're uh, struggling with a, a mental illness of some sort. The second prong we wanna attack is the, the gun community itself. So firearms owners are also, like I said, they're a bit skittish about what mental health treatment looks like so that'll be another installment of the, of the courses that we plan to do, which is to demystify the counseling process in and of itself so that we can invite people in and know that there's a warm, safe, welcoming environment where they can express what they need to express, go through their, their emotional struggles, uh, stabilize their psychological well-being, and go about their business uh, healed and don't have to worry about having their rights seized for, from you know, some arm that reaches into to my office and, and takes their information or whatever. Absolutely. Well said. And so how, how big of a part of the class and how big of an impact would you say, Michael, was the, the physical tools that Rob Pincus brought into the classroom uh, to explain the functionality of the guns themselves um, and the questions that bubbled up from that piece of the class? Uh, I think it had a big impact. There was, I thought there were some great questions asked. I, I remember one gentleman asked, uh, you know, he kind of said, that gun looks really scary compared to the other ones, which those are the questions. That's what we want, right? That's, that's, we want those questions to be asked where people are not ashamed. They come forward. Uh, there's no stupid question. Because this is the communication breakdown usually between a non-gun community person and, you know, someone who's deep into the 2A uh, Second Amendment you know, groups is that they can't have these conversations that educate. And this is what this provided was the opportunity for some mental health professionals to ask questions where there wasn't going to be an argument. There wasn't going to be a, well, you just don't understand me. I'm not going to communicate and walk away. So I think it was, I think it had a huge impact. And I know a few of the people had never shot or, you know, maybe a couple of them had shot a couple times, but never really, you know, taking a serious course with a lot of shooting. And when we were kind of debriefing after, because we, we were going up in different groups, right, to the range, um, I was, the, the conversation and what Rob missed out on, which was a shame because he was on the, you know, he was on the firing line there, 
is the conversations that I heard, uh, especially when you were there, Cheryl uh, and Jake, those were awesome. I mean, that's, that was really a huge part for me because I saw people working through um, what was happening. And I, I remember one kid said, man, I'm still shaky and, and nervous. And uh, those are the things that I love like that, that it was a real working example in real time for me to sit there and watch a bunch of mental health professionals kind of ask questions, uh, you know, go back and forth. Like, I love that. That was awesome. I agree. I think that's the sweet spot when somebody kind of expresses something like that, where they're like, I'm having you know, some kind of a, an emotional reaction to this, whether I'm excited, whether I'm nervous with something. I think that's when you know that uh, they are absorbing some new piece of information in wrestling with, with how to uh, place it in, in their paradigm. Um, Jake, back to you. So why do you think that there is such a, such a gap? I mean, psychologists are amazing at being able to enter another person's experience um, in, in whatever walk of life they come from and then, you know, sit down on the sofa and we get out our Freud pipe and, and do our thing. Right. Um, but why do you believe there's, there is this divide or this lack of understanding that you gentlemen are now trying to bridge when it comes to just this one particular tool? You know, I gotta be honest. I wish I knew. Um, I could, speculate and probably offend a lot of people in my speculation. So I'm not going to do that. Um, I'll do it. <laughs> yeah, I just, I just don't know. I know that, I know that demographically most mental health professionals tend to lean left and uh, people who are on the left hand of the political spectrum tend to be uh, gun opponents or um, at least gun resistant. Uh, so there's that. I mean, there's just a cultural piece there that maybe that we're missing, but, um, but Here's what, what stymies me. As we go through school for, for counselor education, we are taught to be ever-evolving in our thinking, in our belief systems, in our integration of theoretical modalities, you know, how we treat people and how we interact with them and the lens through which we view their, their struggles. We're supposed to be constantly training and constantly flexible and nimble to emerging trends and emerging theories and, and research. And yet I find repeatedly over the last uh, <clears throat> seven years that I've held a license, uh, and that includes spending three years on my licensing board, two of which as board chair in the state of Nevada, um, I've found repeatedly that the people just don't embrace that. They, they, they like what they like, and then they dig their heels in. And I find that professionally offensive, but darn if it doesn't happen. And I got to believe that, that gun culture is just one of those topics that people uh, – categorize for whatever reason they categorize it and then don't move off of it. And, and I think we do that with a lot of different things. I think we do it with spirituality and religion. I think we do it with uh, all sorts of cultural competencies. Uh, we get, we get familiar, we get into our comfort zones and then we don't break from them, which is exactly the antithesis of what we should be doing as clinicians, because we're trying to get our clients to change out of their comfort zones, look at their blind spots, embrace mystery um, move forward through dis discomfort and disequilibrium so they can grow. And yet we ourselves are resistant to that very thing. So um, my hope is that regardless of the, the etiology of it, regardless of, you know, like how, how it manifests or why we can acknowledge that there is a gap because I don't, I don't really care how we got here. All I care is that we undo it. Uh, and the fact is there is a gap 
everybody readily acknowledges it that I speak to, it, whether or not they're on board with the the mission and the philosophy, uh, they at least acknowledge that there's a, there's a communication problem, and then we fix it. And that's all I care about. I don't, I'm not I'm not interested in driving policy, uh, although policy probably could help in some regard. But that's not that's not the main thrust of Walk Talk America. That's not the main thrust of what we're doing with these trainings. Um, we just want a conversation because through conversation, people evolve, people grow, and uh, staying curious and learning about another topic is how you connect with the people who are residing in that topical area, whether it be uh, transgender competency or spiritual understanding or uh, gun culture. If you stay curious and continue learning more, then those parties come closer together. And as a consequence, the recipients of the care that I'm trying to give will be more likely to enter into that care and less likely to try to white knuckle it through on their own and end up uh, you know, dying by suicide or diving into substance abuse to, to, to numb their pain. So true. So Michael, did you have anything to add to that? Well, uh, okay. So there's one thing I think about all the time and cause, cause I'm the ungun gun guy, right? That's, that's yeah. the name that my friends gave me. I didn't call him name myself that and it just stuck, but it's cute. Right. But there's a reason why they say that is because I just don't, I didn't grow up around firearms. I love firearms. I love freedom. I love, uh, I'm a big constitution guy. Um, but I do understand because I don't have a, a desire to go out to a range. If I'm just sitting here by myself, um, I never say, Oh, I want to go shooting. And, and, and there are a lot of people are probably like, Oh, why, why would you say that? But it's true. Um, I find myself only going to ranges usually when I want to show one of my friends or take one of my friends shooting who wants to go shoot without pressure. Right. So you're not get you're not learning from, you know, Mr. Tactical who's out there putting pressure on you or scaring you or that type of thing. So I think one of the biggest issues too, is if I want to learn about the gay community and I don't understand it and I'm a mental health professional, um, I could go into that community and just observe or read or, or communicate with firearms. If you really want to do it, you got to go out and pull a trigger, right? You have to go shoot. Um, you have to be out there and do what it, for many is very nerve wracking. Um, you know, Jake knows that I tell the story of the first time I shot a firearm and I faked my way through it. Uh, I had, there was pressure on me because I had never been in that situation. No one prepared me. My, this is also a big part that, you know, the problem is my family. <laughs> they I look back on it now and most of these people are gone, but I'm like, they never really were big shooters either. I think that they were in, more into the business side, but I went through and if it wasn't for me watching and observing and going up there and just doing what the people did, and this is wrong. This is not, I'm not recommending this. I never fake your way through anything like that. Um, but I had to do it and I was freaking out. And that's the same, the, the people that took this course knew they were gonna go shoot. They knew they were getting the best instruction from a guy like Rob Pincus and they still were freaking out and it's okay to freak out. And I think that there's a lot of people, we, we do this all the time. We, we kind of keep this like, oh, I'm a tough guy, you know, this. And we, we give that off to people and they think it's okay to, they, or they don't think it's okay to say, look, I am really scared right now. My hand is shaking and I'm freaking out. And that's, that's a big deal. I, I think that's a huge problem. 
I could speak a little bit to that too, Mike, because what, what I do professionally is I, I teach a lot of emotional functioning and what you're speaking to there is the emotion of fear. That's one of our 10 discrete emotions that we have in our brain. It tells us that there's a threat or a danger. And often that threat or danger is not physical. Uh, that tends to be the root of it uh, historically, biologically, evolutionarily. But uh, a lot of times fear is ideological. So the fear of having to let go of a belief in exchange for we don't know. Uh, that's a mystery. If I have to let go of my belief about a certain thing, I'm left with this vacuum, this void. And and simply put, mystery is fear provoking because we, we like certainty, especially here in the West. I mean, Western uh, cultures like to know things and we like to have answers. And so if I'm letting go of a belief in exchange for something that I don't know yet what is coming, that's very scary. It's easier just to, to stay where I am uh, convinced of what I what I don't know. So letting go of that just for the purpose of, of say, entering into, you, you mentioned the gay community. If I were going to go into the gay community and learn about um, how you know, gay people tick, uh, I, I would have to go immerse myself in it and have conversations with some of my friends um, and, and ask questions. But in doing so, I'd have to let go of what I think I know about what the gay community means. Similarly, firearms, I have to let go of what I think I know in exchange for some new information. And for, for most people, that's just a very difficult exercise. I agree. And I, I think that what uh, you gentlemen are putting together here is, I mean, for me, I go into legislators' offices, that sort of thing, to, to try to advocate for our Second Amendment rights and our freedoms. And I'm thinking, you know, cultural competence, there's a huge lack of that with our, our political uh, community as well. Politicians are making laws that affect individuals in their everyday lives with almost no understanding of what they're making a law about. And so um, I know you're just getting started with the, the uh, psychology, psychological uh, mental health community, but I'm seeing much broader reach uh, and application of what you guys are, are doing there. Any thoughts on that from either of you? Yeah, yeah tons, because I just finished uh, helping shepherd a bill through our legislature in Nevada to change a lot of the way that our licensing board works for marriage family therapists and clinical professional counselors. Nevada was the only state in the nation for many, many years not to allow those two professionals uh, to be able to treat and diagnose psychotic disorders. We were also the only state in the country that didn't allow its clinical professional counselors to treat couples and families. And as a result, uh, along with some other things, uh, it's not the only reason, but as a result of that, we slowly descended to the bottom of the behavioral health rankings nationally. So um, when I said earlier, you know, I'm not interested in policy, that's not the chief goal of this. I'm not, I'm not interested in going in and thundering away in the legislature and carving out laws and staying up to all hours of the night typing them. But um, as a result, I think it's invariable that we're going to have to have uh, policy changes and law changes and code changes that bring these two cultures together. Because right now, what we've got, and, the, and a big part of the reason there is a chasm, is because for, for whatever reason, Mental health treatment is the only thing that we ask about on things like job applications and security clearances and, um, and firearms access. And some states do it and some states don't. And I understand it's not universal. Uh, and uh, Johnny Pirelli speaks to this in the book um, that, that Mike showed, The Behavioral Science of Firearms, um, written, by the way, just this year, 2019, it was published. So it's, it's not ancient history. 
Um, but he talks about how there are 20,000 some municipalities across the United States and they all have their own unique uh, laws and codes and, and, and so forth. And there, there is no uniformity where in one state you may have to apply for a, a gun license and uh, attest to mental health treatment another state doesn't care. And so simply because it's in law that we ask for your mental health history, um, the gun people aren't interested in even indulging that because they worry that their, their ability to own a firearm is, is somehow going to be threatened. I think it's, it's hugely hypocritical not to ask for other uh, potentially unsafe histories of things like, uh, you know, shoulder injuries. I mean, we don't ask about a history of shoulder injuries when applying for a firearms license, yet that could be hugely problematic if you can't aim straight and, and pull the trigger and absorb the recoil because you got a shoulder issue. Uh, for some reason, we still managed to stigmatize mental health and put it into a corner as though it's uh, some mysterious thing. And then on top of that, as if it can't be overcome or recovered, such that you can live a normal life. And, and that's just false. That's false information. If you couldn't recover from a mental illness, my profession would cease to exist. There'd be no reason for, for me or my people to be, even be around or be licensed if you couldn't overcome stuff. Absolutely. And so, Michael, coming back to you, and really, I don't know why I'm singling you out on this one, because this is kind of a, a difficult topic. Um, so really, either one of you can weigh in on this. We're recording here on the 30th of July. Two days ago on a Sunday, uh, a murderer walked through the Gilroy Garlic Festival, you know, this family-friendly but gun-free zone area, cut his way through a fence, and began shooting people. And uh, the, the young uh, people that he murdered uh, were just tiny children. So when we try to discuss mental health, and we're talking about, you know, the, the broad spectrum of people that would want to even seek out counseling for, you know, how to do their life better. The minute that just an ordinary Joe or Jane might mention to their friends, yeah, I was thinking about going and talking with a counselor. I've, I've been working through some things in my life. I think that there's this reaction in the public that, oh, that means that he or she, Joe or Jane, are going to be one of these murderers that go marching through Gilroy uh, garlic festivals, uh, just indiscriminately killing people. And I think that is part of what is so difficult in even having this conversation. Michael, do you feel comfortable launching in on that one? Yeah, I do. It, there's a couple of issues at play here, and I think people need to understand. Uh, one thing that the 2A community did a horrible job at, and I will put the NRA on the spot for this, is we were not watching our language. We were looking at defending our Second Amendment right from the standpoint of law-abiding citizens who don't have any problems with anger management, and some of us do, right? Like, you can't just say that, you know, everybody in the 2A community uh, should be around a firearm. But, uh, you know, when you say crazy with a gun, or it's, it's not the gun, it's, it's a lunatic. It's, so that, that created the stigma. And I will give credit to the 2A community. I think we are rolling that back now. I think even news and media outlets are trying to be careful with that. 
understanding the language. I don't think we did it on purpose. I just think that it, it, it was easy for us to deflect like that because we're under attack all the time. Um, you know, so that, that's first and foremost. Second thing is we need to understand that whatever the issue that this gentleman had where he did what he did, probably that issue that he has, thousands of people have and have never hurt anybody or anything. So to take one example, right, is th that is the worst way to go about this. A lot of people today are going to say, well, it's a mental health thing. Well, no, it's not a mental health thing because we don't know what it was. And as Jake had said earlier, um, we don't have the ability to predict the future. The only predictor of future violence is previous violence, not mental health diagnosis. So there's no minority report. There's no looking into the future to see what someone would do. And just remember, just take 10 people that's, that suffer, just pick one, say bipolar disorder. There's a good chance that all 10 will never do anything harmful to anybody else, most likely more like to themselves. Um, but if you do have, it's going to be one, right? So the numbers don't add up. And that's you know, and Jake could take it from here, but that's my thought process on when these things happen. Just because somebody does something evil with a gun doesn't mean it's the gun and everybody, you know, I'm a big believer in that. You know, um, I, th I think I'm trying, I'm struggling with where to go with this because uh, there, there, there are many threads that weave into the, the tapestry of uh, how violence gets perpetrated and, and by whom and what it looks like and whether or not it grabs national media attention or doesn't and you know for every uh, for every mass shooting which is horrible and uh and sensational and i don't mean like it's purposely sensationalized for the purpose of clicking links which it is uh there's money to be made off the the more um graphic things than the non-graphic things but for every one of those there's and i'm making up numbers here there's there's a thousand or 10,000 other uh, violent acts perpetrated by people who are struggling with something that we don't hear about. Uh, it's domestic violence, it's sexual assaults, it's um, bullying on the playground, um, all sorts of stuff that because there's not a direct correlation, causation relationship of um, guy with gun, clipped fence, fired gun, bullet struck child, child died. We don't, we don't see um, cyberbullying among you know 12 year olds in middle school leads to x number of suicides or self-harm events we don't we just don't hear about that because it's not it's 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 a big collective yawn from from the media who need advertising to fund their their budget so they're not going to cover that stuff even though it's just as traumatic it's just as impactful it harms way 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 more th i mean thousands of times more communities and families and friends and, and colleagues and coworkers. We just don't hear about that kind of stuff. And, and so I think that the attention, the spotlight gets focused on this, uh, you know, this, this incident that Mike talks about is like, you know, the, the one in a million thing and it quite, it's probably not even that it's probably one in 10 or 12 million. Um, but now suddenly it's on the radar and it's, you know, is it the gun or is it the mental health? And that brings up a really good kind of bifurcation of, is it diagnosed? Or is it undiagnosed? And I think a lot of people who are pushing policies to protect folks from acts like this are, are doing it in a, in a very good-hearted manner. I don't think anybody's out there sinisterly thinking that they're going to just oppress people and take their rights away for the sake of power and control. I, I just fundamentally don't believe that. I know too many people who are 
pushing um, gun control policies who are just good-hearted human beings. So I just, I want to take that off the table. I don't think it's an us versus them. I think people just come at the, the problem from different angles and we have to be compassionate to that. But all the mechanisms by which we're supposed to be protecting folks by restricting access or expanding background checks or including more information in those background checks, um, it, it doesn't account for one very large variable, which is how do we get the information into said background check? How do we get it into the database? Um, for, for most individuals who perpetrate violent acts, they've never received a treatment episode. They've never come into my office uh, or anybody's office. So even if there were some database pulling all my, you know, federally protected, by the way, uh, HIPAA protected health information, even if they were sucking all that from my computers and my database into some national database through which the background checks would sift in order to protect people, uh, they never made it here. So it doesn't, it doesn't matter. You know, you can perfectly legally access a gun and be completely unhinged and go use that in a nefarious way. And we'll never know. So we're talking about diagnosed versus undiagnosed. And then what does diagnosed mean versus uh, whether or not you've been diagnosed and worked through a treatment plan and achieved some success in that treatment plan. And then there's, there's the other issue. Of, uh, what is a mental health thing? Uh, so you have a mental health thing. Uh, how do we ascertain that? What does it mean? Uh, by what level do we, do we ascertain that? Is an adjustment disorder due to a job change enough to uh, trigger you know, a red flag somewhere on a background. I don't mean red flag uh, European laws, but like, is, does it trigger somebody's attention or is it, does it have to be something of a different caliber? And I don't want to say level because diagnoses in my opinion are all just different ways of struggling with stuff. Uh, PTSD isn't worse than uh, low level anxiety. It, it all depends on the user's interpretation of it. I think culturally we put uh, a hierarchy on those things. We say, well, personality disorders are worse than, uh, major depressive disorder or major depressive disorder is worse than ADHD. And, and I just, I don't buy into that. I think they're all just merely different ways of presenting a, a symptom to a problem that somebody's struggling with. So there's a lot of things that need to be answered first before we start going down the rabbit hole of um, trying to protect people from themselves and, and whether it's the gun or the person. And um, those questions just simply don't get asked in legislative hearings oftentimes uh, oftentimes my people aren't even present for those types of things because we're just not into that thing that's not our thing usually we're not we're not big legal activists uh, we like to stay in our offices and help people individually it's tough it's it's a big issue yeah if, there, if I can jump in and just kind of tell a little bit of a story about walk talk America when I first started um, when when I first had the idea I I thought I was going to be the Superman that figured this out. Like I was going to go in and find the next shooter. I, I really had that in my mind. Like, okay, we'll make mental health better. And we'll, we'll fund all these programs that the mental health side has that will find the needle in the haystack. And that's really what it is. It's a needle in the haystack to try to find the next shooter, the, the next guy that does this thing that this guy did at the festival. The, when I started to talk to professionals and I talked to some Michael Jordans of that world, like the Dr. Jeffrey Swansons who were kind enough in the beginning when I was nobody to pick up the phone and give me almost an hour and a half of his time. I didn't understand how important that was um, or how big that was, but they all kept pushing me towards work towards suicide prevention. Right. And, and I couldn't understand that. I was like, no, 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 I'm trying to, 
we're, tr we're trying to save lives here, man. We're trying to save kids and schools and all this blah, 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 blah. And all of them, all of them kept saying, really work within to fix suicide, to, to mitigate those numbers. As the year has gone by, I realized now, because it was almost a disappointment for me, because I was like, why aren't they excited like I am? Well, I realize now that all the mental health professionals I talk to, they're, they're not delusional. They understand that it is truly finding a needle in a haystack. So your energy is spent in better places where we can educate, pamphlet in the uh, gun box, you know, all the things that Walk to Talk America is doing are all these things that are casting a wide net. I believe a wide net. Some people th think wide nets aren't important. I do. I do because I think you can catch things in there and you can learn. I mean, Jake and I wouldn't have been, wouldn't have had this class if we didn't have the wide net at first and drill it down, drill it down, drill it down. It's like, oh, let's do this. Um, I just want people to understand that there's no solution out there to stop it. This is not minority report. That's the best phrase. We cannot look into the future to find the next mass shooter. But I do think that we could start at low levels, destroy the stigma of mental health, make it so people want to go get help at an early age. Like my daughters and I talk about mental health all the time. They're 11 and 13 years old. It's important because it runs in our family. Um, and, and that's, that's how I want them to be comfortable about it. I'm not feeling so good. I think I'm going to go talk to somebody. I, and you, you shouldn't be afraid. Um, I just, I just want people to truly understand that because we can't just blame mental health for when these tragedies happen without understanding that, do you know how hard that is? That's like me saying, go I live in Vegas, go down to the strip right now and figure out a way to come back from that casino with the money we need for our mortgage. I mean, it's not going to happen. It, 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 there's too many people that battle mental illness and it doesn't mean anything because once again, the numbers are so small for the people that actually do something horrific. Most of the time they're hurt by other people because of misunderstandings or they hurt themselves. So I just wanted to add that it, it was really eye opening for me um, to see these mental health professionals and, and Jake, I'm just thinking back to, you know, policy, maybe we need to have more mental health professionals at these policy meetings. Uh, we, need, we need more mental health professionals in their own mental health professional policy. I mean, the, the, the lack of involvement in the laws that I was trying to push for to change, I mean, some of them hadn't been touched in 30 years in Nevada. And, and that was just, just preposterous. And yet they weren't interested. It was fascinating to me. It's like this stuff directly impacts your career. And who do you think's working on your behalf? It's, it was very bizarre, but to circle back around to the training, I love that you're, you're presenting this idea that we need to help the, the two way community, the gun owners to get help so that they don't take their own lives. That's, that's the suicide angle. Go get help. So you don't take your own life. And there's lots of steps to do that. Um, and back ending that we have to be able to make that promise that they can come in and not be judged in the, in the sessions. And that's where the training comes in. We have to train the mental health practitioners themselves to, to be comfortable having that conversation. We get trained to be comfortable having conversations about sex and finances and sexual orientation and all sorts of things that are usually uncomfortable for people, but we've never been told to be, get comfortable talking about gun ownership and safe storage and uh, all that stuff. So that's that we want to be able to make the promise to the, to the folks who are struggling and deliver it. And the only way we can make sure that we deliver it is we've got to train up our own people. Well, that is so important. Uh, and so when we're talking about, 
And I love, Michael, how you brought it to the individual, the, how many people struggle with, um, you know, feelings of possibly harming themselves and, and that sort of thing. Because we do know in the, the uh, firearms community that the vast majority of that big number that the people that hate the idea that we are allowed, allowed, right, legally, uh, our rights uh, secure our, our firearms rights for us. Um, they, they use this huge number that they call gun violence and the vast majority of that number is suicide. People who take their own lives. Um, so I think that that is such an important piece that, that is being actively looked at. Um, I just kind of want to come back to the, the thought that there is such a fear inducing, um, element that if I want to counseling, if I am prescribed like an anti-anxiety medication or an antidepressive medication, that someone somewhere could make a case that I am unstable and that my rights could be taken away. And so I think that that is why it's so important that the mental health community and the legislative community also do come together because it is already happening with these ERPO laws, the, the red flag gun laws, uh, that, that people are just, the end goal is let's keep people safe, right? But the methodology that's kind of bubbling forward and, and in play is not effective and it is actually, I think, going to work against safety because people simply will lock up and say, I'm not... I'm not going anywhere near a mental health counselor because I don't want somebody to make the case that, that I am not in control of myself. Um, so I, wrote, I wrote an article for the walk the talk America website and you can check it out there under the, the media and articles tab uh, entitled counselors cannot take your guns. And we, and, and I say that because first of all, we're not compelled. There's no uh, extreme risk protection order that compels us to disclose or breach confidentiality. Um, in fact, of all the research I've done on all the red flag laws, there's only, they all say basically the same language, which is a law enforcement officer, or a domestic dweller, you know, your roommate or whatever, or a, or a family member can, can um, if they believe that you're at risk of, harming self or others with firearms, they can file for this protection order. Uh, a judge then gets to review it as long as the evidence is clear and convincing, however the judge interprets that, then uh, they can come and force you to hand over your guns. That's basically how they all read, except for one, and that one is New Jersey, where instead of saying law enforcement, family members, and um, live, people living in your home, it says any person. So I think people have extrapolated that to say, oh my gosh, my neighbor who, you know, uh, doesn't like me can just uh, uh, level an accusation and then uh, my, my gun rights get taken and then I'm forever out on some blacklist or my counselor can do it. Well, I'm not, I'm not talking about the neighbor. That's a different issue. I'm talking about our people. Counselors can't take you guys because we also have ethical codes. Uh, if we hold a license, we're beholden to our ethical codes and those ethical codes are more often than not either directly written into statute or code or they're adopted by reference into statute or code, uh, thereby making them legally enforceable. So if I act unethically, I can have my license taken from me. I can uh, face a misdemeanor. Uh, you know, I can never practice again. So I have to be very, very, very 
very careful when I break somebody's confidentiality for the purposes of uh, protection. And that goes for child protection. It goes for elder protection. It goes for other vulnerable populations like the intellectually disabled or the physically disabled. And it certainly goes for people who have the ability to perpetrate violence. I'm assessing in the session whether or not I, you know, pick up the bat phone to, you know, the, the, the law enforcement or the hospital or CPS or whatever it is. And, and then I have to document it. And I have to be really, really, really careful about how I document, how I articulate why I chose to breach this person's federally protected, by the way, confidentiality. So even if there is some law that came down from some state that somehow compelled mental health clinicians to um, push the red button on somebody who's, you know, plinking in the hills with their kids and is also simultaneously struggling with PTSD or anxiety, we would probably have an immediate legal challenge based from our professional associations, that would be the American Association of American Family Therapy, the American Counseling Association, American Psychological Association, uh, the National Board for Certified Counselors. Those people would immediately uh, issue a legal challenge and probably file a lawsuit alleging that it was contradictory with federal law that prohibits us from disclosing that stuff except for extreme circumstances. So there is no taking of guns. And I think it's really important that people understand that um, similarly, we can't, we can't just take other freedoms. It's not our job to take them anyway. It's a judge's job to take it. So, um, we gotta be very, very careful about that kind of stuff. And, and I want the, I want the, the two A community to know that, that it's a safe place to go. Even if your counselor may not be familiar with gun culture, teach them about it. That's okay. Tell them what's up. And, and again, like Mike's saying, you know, we have a, we have an individual responsibility to, to, to be, uh, responsible ourselves too. Are you guys hearing that whistling? I don't know what that is. I think that is my text going on. <laughs> <Just> <laughs> ignore that. I will tell my team, don't text me right now. Um, no, I, I think that that is very well placed, very well said. And um, because if we, if we can make people less afraid to uh, seek the counseling they need, I think that we're going to make them everyone healthier um, and keep more people safe. Um, the, the red flag gun laws and the ERPO laws, they are uh, complicated and each state does kind of have their own version and that sort of thing. So I think it's something we, we in the Second Amendment community need to keep our, our eyes and ears open for how the language is being used and who's allowed to report for what. One of the, one of the big concerns um, is if you're in a domestic, uh, domestic violence situation where one party, the, the abuser can actually file a red flag gun law against the person they're abusing. Um, and so get them disarmed and, you know, so that, that's a, a, a different topic for a different day, but there's, there's a, lot of, um, a lot of things that need to be discussed about that particular thing. Um, the, the legalities and the liability, I think you touched on that quite well, because that's one of the things that I, I feel like, man, what if, what if somebody has had the, like a red flag gun law filed against them? And then somebody in Jake's industry has to be the one that signs off and says, no, I think they're all good now, right? Because we do believe people can get better through mental health. Oh, I think they're all good now. And then that person ends up uh, harming self or others. Uh, how do you even address something like that with your community, Jake? Um, the people that might already be in that camp that they're like, yeah, I just don't even like the whole idea of guns. And then I've got this client that I'm trying to understand them culturally 
and then I've got to somehow sign off and say they're okay. Um, yeah, that's super risky. I don't, we're not there yet. Uh, even for, um, you know, custody issues, uh, we're not the ones who do it. Uh, the judge does it. And, you know, talking about even minors who are in juvenile probation services, they, yeah, it's not the clinician. The clinician is just one piece of information that goes into a, a whole conglomeration of information that the, the court then determines whether or not they're fit to be released from probation or whatever. Um, but that being said, I just had a conversation with a colleague who is a mental health professional. She's uh, married to a federal law enforcement officer. They live up in Washington state. And there's word around the campfire that there's either a new law that was passed or uh, a, a law being considered whereby concealed carry uh, weapons permit holders would have to undergo a mental health evaluation annually. Now, I don't know what the purpose of that is. Um, I can take a guess, but I the first thing I would ask is why? Why is that necessary uh, for, for that? And then force the, the legislator or whoever it is that's proposing this legislation to answer what they're looking for and why such an evaluation would be necessary compared to any other evaluation. Um, you know, why aren't we getting blood work done to make sure that your thyroid is operating properly? Uh, why aren't we doing physical evaluations? But that point aside, it puts the, the clinician in the crosshairs, right? So, uh, pardon the pun, I didn't mean that. Right. Um, right now we have ethical codes. Everybody's got an ethical code that says something to the effect of, uh, thou shalt not issue a custody evaluation for residency, uh, visitation, or, uh, or guardianship. Uh, if you're already treating the person. So we can have a stranger walk in and we can evaluate that one, that person as to whether or not they have a, they're a fit parent to uh, take custody of their children 50% of the time or what have you. But we can't do it with our own people on our own caseload because we already know them too well and we're biased and so forth. So that's ethically prohibited. Our field, however, has yet to address that issue of who's fit to have their gun rights restored, including law enforcement officers, uh, following an officer-involved shooting or a crisis or trauma episode, uh, federal people who need clearances restored after certain incidents, um, maybe after substance abuse treatment. Um, we, we haven't addressed that yet. Can, they, can we assess for fitness of somebody who's on our own caseload, who we know very well and who have you know, reasonably com completed a treatment program, and uh, have met all their goals and objectives, or do we have to refer them out to some neutral third party who doesn't know them at all? That's, that's, a, that's something we're going to have to address. We can't just run from that. And so to Mike's point about more mental health clinicians at the policy table, we better buck up and be prepared for that because it's coming. Because the next thing that's going to be asked is what you just proposed, Cheryl, which is that you know, there's some mental health clinician that's going to sign off, quote unquote, on somebody's fitness for uh, uh, weapons ownership or, uh, or return to. And that was a conversation we had at our training with Jordan, uh, the, the GM of Reno Guns and Ranges. You know, they, they, own, they possess lockers there, and anybody at any time can drop off guns and store them in their lockers. Reno Guns and Range doesn't take them as property. They just provide the locker. Uh, they own no liability. They don't register in their inventory. And uh, that's a really nice, safe alternative for somebody in my office who may be struggling, and I'm culturally competent to say, hey, man, it seems like you're in a pretty bad spot. Do you want to maybe store your guns for, you know, a couple of months down at Reno Guns and Range while we work through this. So you're not tempted by impulse to go use them in the, in the wrong way. And then he or she just walks down there, checks them in. Nobody knows any different. And they pay the monthly fee to store them and they, and they leave. That's a really cool idea. But if we get to the point where they have to be returned under the auspices of a signature, 
then I could liken that to something like an involuntary psychiatric hold, which is exactly the same thing for somebody who's at high risk for harming self or others. And we can involuntarily commit them for up to 72 hours in a hospital so that they can get that level of care and then step back down. But there's ongoing debate about who can release from that hold, how they meet criteria, what that looks like. And so far, nobody's landed on anything affirmative. All we do is just go, yeah, you, you kind of look okay. And based on the scaling before and after, you're no longer an eight, you're at a four, uh, we, can, we can discharge you. But that's, that's got to be addressed. And so far, it hasn't been. Very good. Um, did you have anything to add to that, Michael? Um, I, I don't have anything to add to that. I do want to point out something though, because Jake did author a article, um, a shared story and on the media page about clinicians cannot take your firearms or counselors cannot take your firearms. And one of the cool things about that is in the comments section, you usually get a few people that chime in and either they'll say some blanket statement that I disagree with and I ask them to back it up and they don't. Or they go in and they point out something in a particular state or area, and then we go back and do our research to find out if they're correct about that. And there have been times where we did learn a thing or two by reading the comment section of an article like that. And then I took that information and went to Mental Health America and told on <laughs> that state and actually got to watch the process of Mental Health America circle the wagons with their advocacy groups and say, we're going to go after that. Like New York state right now, I have, um, I have them focused on the safe act and everything about that because they didn't, um, they didn't realize that the mental health question was even being asked and they're like, this, why is this even being asked? So I really want to go back to like, that's, that's, it's what we're, what we're doing right now is so important. Like it's so important to make change because when you go on Twitter, you go on Instagram and you run your mouth and you just complain and you don't do anything, right? That doesn't fix anything. The David Hoggs and some of the people in the 2A community, it's not helping. What we're doing is helping and we're learning. And that's what Walk Talk America is all about is, you know, I have Mental Health America on standby for the things that I see that go against what they say. I, I'm very cognizant of that. I, I look at what they say about mental health and why it shouldn't be stigmatized and everything like that. And I go, hey, Debbie, you know, as vice president of Mental Health America, this goes against everything you told me. What are you going to do about it? And then they do it. So we need to keep having this discussion, the dialogues. I think the 2A community needs to really look into what we're doing. Because if you're wrong or you feel like you've been wrong, share your story and let's get to the bottom of it. And maybe we can help you. So that's what I wanted to add to that. Um, I know it was a little off topic, but you know, when Jake, when you, you said I authored this, this article, yeah, I mean, that's the first thing that popped in my head is it wasn't just, hey, counselors can't take your guns. We, f we found out where certain counselors can cause a problem for you, and now we're going after that with Mental Health America. And to your point, I think that the, the overall uh, underpinning of what you just said is that we, we ourselves behind this, this movement are, are staying humble. Well, we don't pretend to know everything. And there's literally only been one book written on it. Well, one reasonably comprehensive book, and that's uh, Pirelli's book, on this topic at all. So by no means are we experts, and we have not cornered the field, uh, uh, cornered the market on this field. 
Um, so we need to stay humble too, uh, which speaks to Cheryl's point. So when I wrote that article, it was at the time of this writing, <laughs> this is what I, what I know to be true. And then we get in more information and I should probably, that should probably be an ongoing updated article uh, as we get more information about what some other states are doing based on those 20,000 municipalities. Cause all I researched was state level laws. I didn't look into townships and county ordinances. Um, and to Cheryl's point, you know, if I were to write an evaluation on somebody, it would say at the time of this writing. So the reason that my liability insurance is so low for people in our fields, because we never get sued. Um, it's just, it's just not a thing. It's really hard to prove neglect or maltreatment when there's, uh, so much, uh, so much going on and it's really hard to pin down. So we write things like at the time of this evaluation, a uh, person seems or appears to be competent by these and such measures. So 12 minutes later, after they walk out of the office with, you know, my paper, my paper in hand and they go perpetrate some crime, you know, the, the, the opposing counsel is going to be like, Mr. Wiskirchen, you know, waving the, the thing in my face, you know, what, what did you, what did you mean by this? When 12 minutes after he left your office, he went and knocked off a bank. I could be like, well, at the time of the writing, <laughs> and it's like, well, okay, yeah, people can change their minds. No, I think that <laughs> that is so true. I mean, we are um, human beings. We have free will, and, and we exercise that free will all the time. Um, so what I heard you say, Michael, was that there's also a, a form of advocacy that um, WTTA is offering to people who possibly feel that they have been um, mis- um, ca categorized uh, mm -hmm. by a mental health professional. Is that, did I hear you correctly? Yeah, uh, and let me give you another real live working example. I had a gentleman contact me uh, through Instagram and he said, hey, I want to share my story, but I'm a little hesitant. Um, I, I kind of want to run it by you and make sure that I can stay anonymous and everything like that. And he went through and he submitted his story and it was a situation where six years ago he went through a horrible breakup and he was in the state of New York and he, you know, as he put it, he's like, I lost my mind. I, I couldn't, I, I couldn't handle it. Um, and he had done some things that would have been considered hurting himself and it's of the cutting manner, which many people do when they're young. I, I've seen it with, with the youth. Um, it's a way to release pain. Uh, he admitted that it was one time six years ago and he went to go seek help, which is what you're supposed to do. So we shouldn't punish people for doing the right thing. And unfortunately he didn't realize that when he checked himself in and said, I need some help, I'm really struggling with this. Uh, it, it affected his gun rights in the future. So cut to six years later, now he's fighting to try to get those back. Now it's funny about New York is he, he was allowed to buy hunting rifles. You just can't buy handguns, which makes zero sense at all. Like have some consistency if you're going to be stupid. <laughs> all the way through. Um, but the point is, is that I contacted Mental Health America. Uh, the vice president got on the phone with me and said, call this person back get every detail. Let's, let's make sure that, you know, there isn't things. I always have anxiety about that because I don't know who I'm actually talking to. Um, you know, you circle back and then the, the, my worst nightmare is having the person say, Oh, and I forgot, I left this out. I hit her in the face. Right. <laughs> like, but the, the great thing about this situation was the kid answered. Um, we had an amazing conversation when I, when I challenged him and said, you did not do anything to hurt the, the girl that broke up with you, he said, God, no, I, 
I loved her. That's, that's how it affected me. I didn't want the relationship to end, which is completely understandable. And, and then I was comfortable with every detail of the story. And I went back to Debbie at MHA and, and laid it all out. And that's when they targeted the SAFE Act and they started to realize, hey, we didn't even know that this was, you know, on the application form, they're asking you mental health. Just because a kid cut himself six years ago and then did the right thing to seek treatment, no. That doesn't mean, that doesn't matter. That doesn't mean anything. Um, that, that's creating stigma. That's, that's categorizing somebody. Um, as Jake said earlier on this conversation, you have, we, we can fix this. If we can't, then Jake doesn't exist. All right. That's the whole goal is that there's an end game. Like just because you were something six years ago, doesn't mean it's, you're now. And we do that with everything else except for mental health. That's a weird thing. You know, yeah. Sorry, Mike, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go. go. Uh, I want to point out two things. One is that um, we actually have, we also have ethical codes in, in everybody's profession that say something to the effect of you only continue treatment so long as it's clearly benefiting the client. Once it's done benefiting the client, meaning they've recovered, you discharge them. You don't keep them hanging on in case something else later happens. If something else later happens, they can re-enter care and come back. Um, and similarly, you don't keep them languishing in in treatment in perpetuity, just to pad your calendar in your wallet. That's highly unethical. And insurance companies are getting savvy to that too. And they're making my life much more challenging because they're starting to override some of the, the, the treatment suggestions as far as, you know, number of sessions and, and according to diagnosis and that kind of thing, because they realize they're hemorrhaging money and, and insurance companies are not evil. Like everybody thinks um, they can be very difficult and they are in it to make money, but they're not evil. They're just trying to protect their own bottom line the same way everybody else is. And one of the ways they do it is they've sniffed out that a lot of my people are doing bad things like keeping people in care for far too long. So the idea is that if you enter care, you'd better leave care at some point because if you're, if you're not improving, we need to refer you on to somebody else with whom you have a better report or we need to change the, the treatment angle make sure that you're actually healing because that wouldn't occur in any other profession. No doctor's going to keep you coming back over and over and over to the office again. And I mean, at bare minimum, you incur liability because you're enabling the bad behavior that's causing harm to the, the person. So that's point number one. Um, point number two is that when, when we're talking about like um, getting, getting help and, and moving forward and, and accomplishing something once, once you hit that, that point of, you know, we've discharged you now um, and you, and you move on with your life. We don't, we, we really shouldn't be in a position to go back in time and grab information and, and jobs do this all the time. They, they ask for all sorts of things on applications for employment. Like, you know, have you ever been convicted of a crime? And then from there they can discriminate. And I think that's hideous. And, and basically what, we're doing with mental health treatment is we're discriminating. We're openly discriminating against people who struggled, did the appropriate thing, got themselves care. And then uh, later in life, they're not allowed to uh, seize some of the fruits of their labor because somebody somewhere has a judgment about whatever care they got. I mean, can you even imagine if we we're asking if, if somebody had, uh, you know, incurred cancer treatment at some point in their life, they're like, yeah, I'm in full remission. And the, and the employer or the uh, the government who's giving you the, the driver's license or the or the gun carry concealed carry permit is like, well, we think you might be at a higher risk of recurring with your cancer, so we're just not going to let you uh, come on board with our company or drive on our roadways. Like <laughs> instant lawsuit, uh, instant policy change, 
uh, death be upon those people who <laughs> like concocted that thing. But for some reason in mental health, it's, it's cool to ask that and stigmatize people. It blows my mind. I, I agree. And so one of the things that I love so much about the fact that you, uh, Jake, have really dove in full force with uh, this program is because there does seem to be this impression that if you are any kind of a clinician, mental health, physical health, whatever it is, that you're automatically um, not okay with people having their Second Amendment rights. And there's a group out there called Doctors for Responsible Gun Ownership, the DRGO, and um, they are uh, actively trying to be sure that like the questions that are being asked um, by doctors um, are not inappropriate. Uh, so there was a wave going on for a while where, you know, on the paperwork, doctors would just ask, well, do you own any guns and how many, that kind of thing. But they didn't ask, well, do you own any sharp knives and how many? And do you have an enclosed garage, you know, where you could asphyxiate yourself? Do you have any, you know, links of rope where you could, you know, harm yourself with those things? So they were specifically targeting guns, and, and this group has worked towards um pushing back on that sort of thing. Uh, and you had talked about the night of the, the workshop, you had talked about the benefits of people in your field who maybe they need to come out of the gun closet themselves to help their fellow uh, clinicians understand the normalcy of having this particular tool in their home. It's been it's been pretty uh, heartwarming and, and somewhat surprising to hear as much feedback as I have through uh, text message and direct message on Instagram and um, emails uh, from people saying thank you for doing this. Uh, it's high time uh, about you know about time we do something like this. And they're either they're either gun owners themselves or they're married to somebody who is or uh, they had a spouse uh, or um, have family members who have served in the military or in law enforcement, or they used to be in law enforcement themselves. And so they've got all these peer network connections that, that, um, you know, spider web out. And a lot of times the folks that have reached out have said, thank you, because, you know, had this been different, uh, my husband, my, my now, you know, deceased husband might still be alive or, um, you know, had this been different, uh, maybe my, uh, my my buddy from Iraq might still be alive, and so there's a lot of thanks coming out of the woodwork that I didn't, I don't think I appreciated before we launched this, and I think the best thing we can do now as clinicians who are also gun owners is just start talking about it like it's a normal thing because it is, and uh, like one of the worst things I think that we've done to ourselves as a community is um, we've perpetuated our own stigma. I was told. I don't know how many times by professors and supervisors that if you see one of your clients in public, uh, you, you know, you're pushing your shopping cart down the aisle, you see them and you turn and go the other way. And, and it's like, what? No one does that except us. Attorneys don't do that. Orthopedists don't do that. Dentists don't do that. Um, my financial advisor, you know, takes me golfing. Uh, like, like they all handle highly sensitive information in highly private areas of my life. And they don't have a problem with, the interaction in the community setting, and yet some for some reason we do. Um, I was told once by a professor that the that the ideal, the quote unquote ideal office would have an entrance and an exit and separate lobby areas so that none of the clients could ever see each other. 
I'm like, that is the stigmatization of mental health when we're doing it to ourselves. And I think that's complete crap. And we need to stop doing that because it sends a terrible message of shame to the people who are seeking treatment. So what I want to do is I want to normalize the conversation. I want to make it cool to go get counseling. I want people snapping selfies in the middle of my lobby at Zephyr Wellness and having conversations among each other the same way that I do at my orthopedist lobby where it's like, you know, I look over and I'm like, that looks like the same air cast I wore. Is it an ankle injury? And they're like, yep. How'd you do it? I'm playing soccer. Oh, I rolled down some stairs. Okay. You know, like that's the conversation that needs to occur. We need to normalize this because we're all human beings who are struggling in the same way. You got issues. I got issues. We all got issues. We just deal with them differently. But as long as it's shelved and stuffed into the corners and the, in the, in the dark areas, um, everybody's afraid to, to come forward and, and talk about it. And I don't think it's a shameful thing to own guns or to carry guns. Uh, it's a, it's a constitutionally protected, right? We can debate whether or not. It, like, Whoa, so sorry. You're stuck. They just can't follow. Um, but whether it's, you know, what kind of right it is, that's, that's for lawmakers and constitutional scholars to debate. Right now, what we do know is that uh, it's, it's a federally protected right, and it, there's nothing to be ashamed of except what culture may tell us. And, you know, culture be damned. People are dying because we've stigmatized this to the point that we're not getting help. So I, I and my colleagues probably should come out of the quote unquote closet and be like, yeah, I'm a gun owner and I'm a clinician. What of it? <laughs> like literally what, what's the deal here? Uh, let's have that conversation. And if there's no deal, if there's nothing, nothing to be made of it, then let's not make anything of it. Let's start, let's start being normal. Yeah, actually I want to add to that point, Jake, cause we've had, we, I mean, this is the great thing about, what Walk the Talk has brought into my life. I have people like Jake, I, I have people like Debbie. Um, I get to ask a lot of questions, especially on private phone calls as in develop friendships with these people. Jake and I have talked many times um, like about the, like the movie, The Green Book, right? And that was basically a book for those people that don't know, it was a book that showed where black people could stay in the South, in the racist South. Um, and stay at hotels and, and restaurants and, and not, they were welcomed, right? So we've talked about the same thing with mental health. Why not just come out of the closet like Jake said and say, look, we're gun friendly. Um, you know, put it, put it on the literature, uh, own it so people know, hey, I'm not feeling so well. I need to, 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 to focus here. I need to talk to somebody. Oh, Zephyr Wellness. Oh, see, they say they're gun friendly. I'm 2A. Like, they're not going to ask me questions that don't make sense. If they're going to ask me about, do you have a firearm in the house? If you're going through something, maybe just store it somewhere, somewhere safe, um, you know, and then we can move forward. I like that idea because uh, then it will take half of that away because most people just don't know. You can open up the phone book or go on Yelp and you see 20 different organizations or companies that deal with mental health and we don't know where we're going. Uh, I like the idea of having people just kind of say, this is who we are. This is who we talk to. Um, I think when we even use this conversation, Jake, you gave me different categories where people say it's okay. I can't remember what some of those categories were where people say, okay, if you're struggling with this, we're here, right? What are, it's like. Yeah. So uh, psychologytoday.com is one of the, the premier websites that people use to advertise themselves and their practices. And they have different checkboxes for competency areas and strengths. So if you're really good with adolescents, you check the adolescent box. If you're not great with children, you don't say 
don't send me your children. You just don't check the box because you're not a specialist. And, um, and one of those things you could check on was, you know, two uh, a friendly or, or gun culture competent or something like that. Cause they even put stuff up for like airline pilots. Um, cause that's, that's a deal. Um, I, I don't see any reason why we couldn't work with psychologytoday.com to, to make that happen. Um, but I think that the hesitation, it comes from agencies and agency owners. So like I own an agency and I have several people working for me and not all of them may be comfortable working with, uh, you know, or advertising themselves. So if Zephyr Wellness says we're a gun friendly agency and a couple of my clinicians are like, well, I'm not so sure about that. Um, that's fine and all. Uh, my push as a fellow clinician, as a supervisor of clinicians, as counselor educator, um, as a, as a clinical director is to, to say, get yourself competent. If you want to work here, uh, here's what we believe in. So our, our tagline is innovative and philanthropic. And somebody says, well, I don't feel like giving my time away. Okay, that's fine. But you're affiliated with an agency that does. So, um, you don't get to complain when I'm out there, you know, for free at a tabling booth. Uh, if you want, you know, to do something else, that's fine. But, um, just know that you're on board. So we give them a choice. I mean, you can, you can just work elsewhere if you don't agree, you know, politically or philosophically, but here's the asterisk on that as clinicians, we're not allowed to bring our stuff into the room. And I need that to sink into anybody who may be listening to this. So if you go into a counselor's office and you start uh, laying your, your struggles on the table and the, and the clinician gets uncomfortable, that's a problem. We don't get to be uncomfortable about your discomfort. We get to make ourselves competent enough to help you through it, regardless of what it is. And I'm not saying be a jack of all trades because uh, that's very, very challenging. But what we should be doing is being competent enough to say, this is an area that is completely foreign to me. Um, are you willing to help me as I teach myself through this? I'm going to go get some consultation. I'm going to get some extra trainings. I'll keep you in care if you and I have a good rapport. Um, but just know that this isn't my strength. And then the client gets to decide whether or not they refer themselves out to another clinician that has a strength in a certain area. But we should not be doing that. We should be ever increasing our own competence in all areas. So let's take, for example, uh, I'm, I'm clearly a white male. You guys can all see it on camera. If a young black female comes in and she's 14 years old um, and says, I'm struggling with uh, something that, you know, doesn't hit me in my you know, white culture. Uh, I have a duty and an obligation to, to disclose to her, say, hey, look, you're talking about something that I'm not familiar with. You can help me along with this so I understand where you are. And meanwhile, I'll go out and get some professional training. Are you comfortable with that? Or would you rather look for somebody else to, to help you with this? Um, I am not supposed to just be discharging clients because I'm, I'm uncomfortable with their stuff. That's highly unethical. And there's been many court cases about stuff like that. Um, you know, people being turned away for being homosexual, struggling with their sexuality, and the uh, the hard charging, you know, right leaning clinician who is steeped in religion says, uh, you know, I don't agree with your homosexuality, so I'm not going to treat you, and I'm going to hide behind competence. That's that's highly unethical. We're not supposed to do that. And similarly, we shouldn't be in a position to go, well, I don't know anything about guns, and I don't believe in guns, and and therefore I'm going to I'm going to refer you out. Uh, we shouldn't be doing that. So if you're listening and you're a client seeking care and you get that like spidey sense that the back of your neck is standing up, like, I don't think this person gets me. Go ahead and ask them. Have you had training in the area that I'm disclosing to you? Uh, trauma disorders, um, you know, death and, and, uh, and grief and loss, um, divorce, uh, ch child rearing, parenting, like whatever you're there for, ask them. So that's my little pro tip to whoever's listening is to take, take the gun thing out of it for a second. Whatever you're there for, your, your clinician should be competent or striving toward competence. 
That's that's beautiful. I love that. Um, and I've kept you gentlemen for far longer than I had originally planned. So I do want to start uh, winding down a little bit. But uh, when you said something about you know spidey senses, it brought something to my mind that uh, people do develop phobias uh, about certain things. Spiders are one of them. People have fear of flying. Um, the only thing that I can think of right now that is like fostered phobia that people actually, uh, the news media and politicians uh, are actually fostering. Uh, are you struggling with your camera a little bit there, Jay? I, I, I was, but I'm okay now. If that was broadcasting to everyone, I apologize. I just assumed that it was only on the speaker. I just think that when the thing hears a sound, it goes to whoever made the sound, but I will find out on the replay, but it's my bad. because my phone's been ringing, my text has been happening, so it's it's no big deal. Um, and it's free, now you get what you pay for. There, there you go, right? Uh, so uh, I believe, and I could be just not thinking uh, of another example, but that firearms, the guns themselves, the tools themselves are the only thing that there is this concerted push towards fostering a phobia of, to the point that uh, in casual conversations, uh, one of my other businesses is an auction house. We settle out of states. So, you know, we just have a series of questions that we ask people about the items that they want to sell and liquidate. And among those, you know, we'll say, do you have any coins? Do you have any guns? And you would be maybe not shocked how often you get this pearl clutching <gasps> guns. Oh my, no, 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 no. Right. Uh, or if somebody were to see a firearm as they walk into the auction house, they might feel like, oh my gosh, why is that thing sitting there? And is it going to do something to me? Uh, if there was any other thing out there that, that people had that kind of a phobia about, there would be a treatment for the phobia itself rather than this kind of like, yeah, you should be afraid of that thing because it might sprout legs and jump up and do something to you immediately. What are your thoughts on that? Mike, you can go. I'm still trying to think of a, of another thing and um, I've got a few, but they're not quite the same. Do you, can you think of anything, Mike? No, but I will say this. Uh, this is a, a conversation I was having with my 13 year old while we were on a walk talking the other day. And I asked her, uh, do you feel safe at your school? Because I was curious. And she said, sometimes I don't. And I said, well, why? And she said, just because of what I've seen with school shootings, you know, there's in the back of my mind, I'm always wondering when we hear something, a uh, loud noise, she's like, I do think about it. And, you know, I kind of said, <laughs> I laughed and I said, listen, um, I'm more afraid of the cars that are driving by right now while we're walking because I've known uh, more than one person who was just taking a walk and got hit by a car on the sidewalk. So I personally have had tragedy um, happen, you know, in my circles more than once with a car. And I look at my little 13 year old daughter and I'm like, oh, she's going to be driving soon. We're like four years away from this, you know? <laughs> um, and that kind of freaks me out. Because I know how, especially in Vegas with the sun and everything like that, how dangerous cars are. Um, but somehow they've, you know, they've taught my daughter or, you know, in her mind, she's worried about school shooters, which 
as we go back to the, uh, you know, a couple segments ago when I was talking about when I went into the mental health community and they were pushing me more towards suicide over stopping a mass shooter, um, I just think that's a very interesting dynamic that, that people do have that fear of firearms. When we all know the firearm is not, it's just like the car that is not on, right? The car's not running, so it's not going to run you over. <laughs> it's, it's the same with the gun. If the gun isn't, if the trigger is not pulled, it's not going to go off. I so, think that, oh yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. I think there's um, there's an interesting point to be made here about the the, the statistical relevance of uh, mass shootings and and what they're you know I don't want to say they but you know there is a there is a they that's talking so much I don't know who they are but they're they're clearly talking to the point that your kid is scared of the statistical anomaly. And I understand not everybody takes statistics uh, in school, um, but a, a statistical outlier is not where you start making policy. And it's really fascinating to me, and I don't know that I've considered this until just this moment, that in this ever-emerging society's societal attraction to evidence-based treatment, evidence-based practice, evidence-based legislation and policy, uh, we're not actually using real evidence when we make gun policy. And that's, that's really interesting to me because um, you're right. They're, they're statistical outliers. Uh, they're very scary, uh, but so are a lot of other things that, like I said earlier, just don't get reported. Now, something else was uh, I was thinking about all the things that could be scary and that scared me. And, and I love the idea that you laid out there, Cheryl, about like looking at a gun and like, you know, what is that thing? And I don't understand it. Right. So there's a, there's a fear based on ignorance and, and that's okay. Like ignorance breeds fear because ignorance is based in mystery and lack of understanding. And so, you know, the, the appearance of certainty or knowledge can alleviate a lot of fear. If I understand something because I've been exposed to it or I've been educated about it, then, then my fear goes away because it's no longer mysterious. And I'm thinking about things that I'm, I don't know well, uh, power tools, uh, like non-handheld power tools, like uh, table saws and um, lathes and uh, stuff like that, uh, uh, drill presses. I mean, I took a wood shop in seventh grade that was a long time ago. Those things are, are spooky to me because they have moving parts that can slice my fingers. And, uh, and, and so they're a little spooky and I need some training in that. And I'm going to repeat that. I need some training in that. Uh, similarly, you know, popping the hood, I'm that guy that, you know, pops the hood and looks at the engine and goes, yep, it's an engine because I know nothing about car parts. I do the same thing. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> As if I'm going to somehow know what's yeah. wrong with my car when I'm yeah. like, training at all. I can change my battery. I can jump a battery. Um, the days of changing my own oil are, are long gone because uh, cars are just more computers now than anything. Um, but that's another thing where I go, yep. Okay, I'm going to smile and nod while the mechanics tell me what's wrong, but I am not understanding a single thing. Um, so I want to be careful that we don't make too big of a blanket statement about uh, the fear of guns is the only thing that we're afraid of. I don't think that's the case. I think it's the only thing that we make policy based out of the fear uh, because cars can kill people. Cigarettes definitely kill people. Vaping now, I just took a vaping webinar that suggests that while moderate uh, success is achieved through lifelong cigarette smokers who then switch to vaping. They can start to cease their cigarette smoking. Uh, there's some moderate evidence that suggests that 
Contrarily, we now have evidence that suggests that children who start smoking uh, vapor uh, devices are four times more likely to engage in combustible cigarette smoking. And we know that stuff kills you. So like there's death all over the place. Alcohol is like the most dangerous drug we have outside of some of the you know synthetic manufactured stuff that's not nearly as popular um, because it's the only one you can die from withdrawal symptoms. And yet that's perfectly legal and more or less unregulated. So I don't think that everybody's afraid of guns uniquely. I think we're afraid of whatever we're ignorant about. And that just indicates that we need to go pursue more understanding of that thing. Uh, we did it with uh, racial minorities. We've done it with uh, sexual orientation groups, uh, gender orientation groups. Um, maybe maybe gun ownership is the next you know domino to fall in the the, the cultural compelling uh, that that says go go seek more knowledge about that which you do not understand. I love it from your lips to God's ears on that one. Well, this program, this workshop that you gentlemen started um, on a Thursday night in Reno, Nevada in July of 2019. What I believe uh, about it and what I believe I've heard you say is that it is a, a living, breathing, growing program that you're open to oh, I hadn't thought about this thing before. I think that's something we need to incorporate into it. Or I feel like we've kind of um, rectified th this situation or this part of it. So maybe we don't need to lean so much into that area. And you're, it, you're going to let um, each class and the, and the people who show up in the class kind of lead you into what areas you need to teach in that individual class. Uh, I think that's a wonderful and beautiful thing. Um, and what's the future? Like, where do we go from here? It, it was a Thursday night in Reno. What, what's the next one? Well, some of the feedback was that the day and time weren't the best. Uh, so Thursday night, you know, people's brains are fatigued. Uh, Saturday mornings are probably better, um, you know, something like that. Or, uh, or early, early morning on a weekday so you can, you know, carve out your morning and then get on with your day you know, professionally. But uh, I think what we've done, uh, I've evaluated the feedback, both the written and the oral, and I think what we're going to do is uh, we're going to take a lot of what they're asking for and implement it into the second installment. So we'll, we'll tighten up the intro course and more or less leave that the same because I actually like the, the questions and the desire to learn more. I don't want to augment the intro course. Uh, I want to keep the intro course where it is and then augment the second installment and eventually over time, what I'd like is probably a four or five part uh, series where you can get a, a full-blown certificate of competence. Um, maybe it's, uh, I don't know, 12 or 16 credits worth uh, of people who can stack their learning uh, one course to the next. And it'll just eventually get more and more advanced to the point where we create people who can then turn around and start doing their own trainings out of this thing. Uh, that That's my goal anyway. And, and also offering courses to the to the gun owners themselves to demystify counseling. I love that. Michael, what do you feel? What do you believe? Uh, what do you have planned for the future of this program? Will it always be in Reno at no, the uh, Reno no. Guns and Range? No, absolutely not. I want to take this thing nationwide. Uh, one thing, though, I do want to do is challenge the 2A community to get behind Walk the Talk America. Uh, these are the things that we're doing. And I 
really, really, you know, there, Rob is a polarizing figure. He'd be the first person to admit that. But one thing I will say about Rob, one thing I will say about Jake is they're doing something. Okay. We were doing a lot of stuff. There are no paid employees at Walk Talk America. Nobody takes a salary. Nobody does it. We're all doing this because we believe that we're making change for the better. So I think it's time that we start challenging some of the manufacturers. I put my money where my mouth is. I had Eagle Imports when I owned Eagle Imports doing a dollar a gun. Um, but that's what we need to continue with this on a national level. We can't keep complaining about firearm death and say two thirds of it is suicide and the rest of it are the minority communities. We need to start going straight at those things or shut up. Don't talk about it anymore. You lost your right to talk about the two thirds death suicide and the rest minorities. That we need to be on the forefront of suicide prevention and we need to go right in the underprivileged, underserved communities with our programs and policies to educate, de-escalate, violence, all those things, de-escalation. We need to, to be there. And if you don't wanna do what Jake does, or Rob does, or I do, and do it for free, then I, I need some help financially because this program needs to be nationwide. Cheryl, you saw it, you were there real time, you saw the effect it had. Uh, this is something that needs to be everywhere. It needs to be in Florida, it needs to be in Maine. Uh, it doesn't need to just be in Reno. So I, I'm challenging the 2A community right now to get behind what we do. If you wanna give money and you want to know that that money is going to 100% of the cause, then walk to talk America's place. I'm not going to be buying designer suits. It's just not going to happen. All right. I'm going to be walking around in t-shirt and jeans like I always do, doing the right thing by the community, the mental health professionals, and the 2A members that are law-abiding citizens that are responsible. That's it. So that, that's what I want to say. I'm going to get off my soapbox right now. So... <laughs> I love that though, man. You don't need to apologize for soapbox and that fires people up. People need to see passion. They, they don't need to just see intellect. Of course, everybody knows that this needs to happen. Reason and logic make good sense because they live in the frontal part of the brain, but emotion is what inspires people. So I appreciate that you just did that. That makes me, that, that makes me really happy and proud to be a part of this stuff. We know we, you just shared and communicated through your own passion how much this means. It's not just some logic step because it's cool and we want to make ourselves look neat to everybody because we're trying to do something for the first time. We're doing it for the first time because nobody else is doing it. No, that's, that's exactly right. And um, just as we start winding down here, I just want to say that I saw, I think it was a tweet maybe that, that Michael had put out that he was planning this event. And literally, I picked up my, my phone that you know I have because it keeps interrupting us today. And, and I, I texted the words, please, please, please let me be there for this workshop. I felt that excited and passionate. And I didn't even really know what was planned. I just loved the idea. I felt deep inside that it was something that is filling a void uh, that is going to move not just a ball forward. Like I said, if we can get this cultural competency going, this conversation going, um, then it, it can have reverberating effects in all kinds of areas. And I am just so honored and excited that, I, that Michael actually said, yeah, sure, show up, you know? So <laughs> 
Um, I booked that plane ticket and, and got myself there. And I, I don't know that I've spent better money in a long time. So um, super excited about that. Super excited about everything you guys have going on. As we close out, uh, Michael, t tell people, you know, you said either help or send help in the form of money. Uh, how do people do that? How do they reach out to you? How do they follow the work you're doing? And how would they possibly, you know, instead of buying that next cup of coffee, you know, send a few dollars over to help with uh, the, bridging this gap between guns and mental health? Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for saying that and pointing that out because uh, it's not that, A, it's not that hard to find me. I've become a media whore, especially on social media. Uh, I went years without posting much and now all of a sudden I find myself having to say something every day. Um, but you can find us at Walk the Talk US on all social media outlets. That's Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. And then you could go to WTTA.org or WalkTheTalkAmerica.org. And I, I, I have this theory, it's, it's called buy me a drink, right? Um, every time I'm in the industry and I'm at a show, it's amazing how many of my colleagues and peers say, hey Mike, come here, let me buy you a beer. All right, well screw that, don't buy me a beer anymore. If it's just $5, just, just throw $5 Walk Talk America's way. Once again, like I said, 100% of what we do goes to our programs and policies. There's, there's not one person that's involved in this, or one, everybody volunteers and, and, and does it for their soul and the rest of the community. So please, if it, I, I'm not good at this. Guys like Maj Torre are awesome for asking money for the things that he's doing. I am not good at this, but if I'm gonna take this stuff national, I gotta figure out a way to pay for it. And it can't just be Eagle, it can't be, just be Arms Corps, it can't be uh, just Brian Tucker from Davidson's, Lipsy's. I need more people to step up. And if you don't wanna step up financially, figure out another way to step up. And I'm, I'm going to let Jake take this from here, but Eagle Imports was the first people to put the mental health flyer in the box. Arms Corps has stepped up and all their firearms include the mental health flyer uh, that leads to the screenings from WTDA.org forward slash love. High Point is on board, but there is no reason why as the 2A community, we can't have every manufacturer putting that in the box, directing where people could go get help or at least screen themselves for help. Uh, free and anonymous, right? That's a, anonymous is huge because we don't we don't want to identify ourselves. But this these screenings help you. Every gun manufacturer, if you're not giving money to support the programs, should be putting the flyer in the box. There is no there's no benefit to me. There's no benefit to Walk Talk America. It's about putting it in the box, showing the rest of the world that yeah, we know there's a problem and we're going to address it. We're going to start addressing it. Do you want to help us, the rest of the world who wants to complain about us? Or are you going to sit on the sidelines too? Sidelines are fine. Just sit there and shut up. So please, if you're not going to give money, call, if it's Ruger, if it's Smith & Wesson, if it's Charter, if it's whoever it is, say, you really should be putting this flyer in the box. Because that's a start. That shows the rest of the world that we do care. We are going to do something. And we are going to be like the alcohol industry soon. I believe this. I believe in us. We're going to get ahead of it so that people leave us alone. Nobody blames Johnny Walker when there is a DUI down the street. They don't call Bud Light. They don't call those people and complain and say, shut them down. They don't. So anyways, that's all I got to say. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. And Jake, uh, all the work that you're doing there, because, you know, you do have uh, Zephyr Wellness 
but you have also invested yourself, your time and energy in uh, developing policy and and making sure that the licensing process in Nevada is you know up to speed up to date that sort of thing um, so you are really a mover and a shaker because you're not you're not okay with the status quo and it shows in everything that you do tell folks how they can um, stay in closer contact with what you have happening because whatever happens with gun laws and everything else, what happens in one city or one state impacts and will grow and spread, uh, you know, citywide, statewide, nationwide. So tell folks how they can uh, keep on tabs of what you're doing and reach out to you uh, if they have questions, if they want to be a part of this as a student or maybe as a, to help with the, the leadership. Thank you, uh, first of all, for having us on here. Um, and to, to Mike's point, just to put a bow on that, uh, because he struggles with fundraising. I, I, I also struggle to, you know, I think we all struggle to ask for help uh, unless we're just wired differently or been coached differently. To, to drive the point home, though, the flyers that go in the boxes cost money. They're not cheap. And that's where the money goes. It goes to things like that. And, and if we already take this nationally, it's going to have to pay for transportation, you know. So, um please, please donate. Even if you are unsure or you have your doubts, like the way that things get off the ground is we don't wait till they're perfect. We do something and then we perfect them as we go. And then we get to look back two or three years later and go, man, imagine where we were and think about where we are now and where we could be. Um, if, if we had only just done something sooner, like, well, this is the time to do that thing. Right. So, um, definitely give to walk and talk America, but if you want to stay up on, on what I'm doing, I have a weekly podcast called Noggin Notes, and it's tied to an app, uh, a mobile app called Noggin Notes with the same uh, title. And what the app does is it it's emotionally driven. Uh, so I, I teach the 10 core emotions from a guy named Carol Izzard, who's studied for like 50 years. And so there's the 10 emotions in the app, and you open the app up, and you click whatever you're feeling. You actually start with gratitude first. You log something for which you're grateful, because that puts your mind in the right set of you know being grateful grateful uh, so it automatically improves your mood but then you click on whatever you're feeling and then you make a journal entry about it so you got a virtual journal uh, that then creates a timeline and you can start to see trends through that timeline it's pretty cool it's free um, and uh, hopefully in time we're going to make that app a little bit more robust but nestled in the app is the podcast but you can also if you don't want the app and you just want to listen to me talking into a microphone on a weekly basis you can just download the podcast through any podcast uh, app iTunes, anything from Google Play. I use Podcast Republic on my phone. But um, so Noggin Notes is the name of that. And that's free, but it costs money too. So we'll gladly take your money to support that. Um, ZephyrWellness.org is the website. Um, we, we try to post as much as we can on the media and articles. I've been lagging for the last few weeks. Uh, my most recent podcast explains why I've been lagging on my, my uh, media and articles posting. We have a YouTube channel. Uh, it's got one guy on it. It's me. I just I post videos from time to time uh, behind a little bit on that. It's been a couple of months. Uh, and then uh, we have an Instagram page also, uh, Zephyr Wellness does. Um, but uh, I think I think the, the most important thing you can do is just um, stay up on literature. Just just look for stuff to read. Mike's done a great job. Rob's done a great job on, on their social media accounts of reposting things that are relevant to the, to the community. And I'm going to start posting more uh, actual literature on our on our page too so um i'm just i'm i'm blessed enough to be in a position where i have people 
working for me who generate my salary so that I don't have to slug it out 30 fine hours a week to, you know, make my, make my mortgage payment. I get to go do things like this. Um, I'm not, I'm not robustly paid, but it, I also don't necessarily have to sacrifice a, a big chunk of my income to go make this happen. And to me, that's, that's the world. Um, I also have a hugely supportive family, hugely supportive business partner. All my interns and students and my employees are really supportive of all these endeavors, I think, because uh, they're necessary. And truth truth strikes home. It, it tends to penetrate people. And we all know that this stuff is is helping. And so when I get to go gallivanting around the state, you know, doing policy stuff, you know, like I have for the last few years, um, people know that it's for the right reasons. It's not just for self-aggrandizement or, you know, to, to make me look cool or whatever it may be. Uh, God knows it's not for that reason. I took on a, <laughs> this licensing board thing was basically a second full-time job for which I got no compensation uh, and it ate my lunch, but I think it'll be worth it in the end. And through things like that, I got to meet really cool people with whom I'm not networked and I'm, I'm, I'm able to pull this stuff together through Walk the Talk America and uh, some of the other endeavors. So um, I'm just, I'm just humbled and odd and yet still pissed. And uh, some of, some of what I teach in the emotions thing is that uh, anger is not to be suppressed. It is to be examined and utilized. And it's usually utilized to make change. So why I'm angry is because for many, many years, people of my stripe and people who are the, the political leaders of my state and, and our nation have kicked the can down the road with regard to mental health. And I'm angry because this stuff should have and could have been solved decades ago. Uh, we still have laws on the books from the mid sixties that have outdated judgmental language, like adjudicated mentally incompetent is a phrase that you you'll see in federal language. I mean, it's, it's just disgusting to me and I'm angry about it. I'm angry that marriage and family therapists and, and licensed professional counselors cannot get into network with Medicare uh, there have been five separate congressional efforts since 2002 that have all died to try to make that happen. Just in the last like three years, we've been able to work at the VA and the VA is still loath to hire because they just don't, don't believe that we're competent or something. So this is a big problem. Like it's, it's, it's mind blowing how simple the solutions are and yet how much um, nonsense stands in the way based on just hearsay or, or, or indoctrinated belief. So I'm angry. I don't want, I don't want my kids growing up on the playground getting bullied like I did. I don't want to see couples fighting in the aisles of the grocery store. Um, I don't want to see uh, people addicted to drugs uh, living on the street. I think that, that there's a very simple solutions to this stuff that don't involve raising taxes and gobs of money and gobs of bureaucratic infrastructure and, uh, you know, restricting rights and, and liberties. I, I just think, I think there's a different way to do it. And so if we can have a healthy society and I work myself out of a job, I'll be happy to work myself out of a job and, you know, hang drywall for a living to pay my bills because everybody around me will be healthy and happy. That's, that's my goal. And I'm, I'm pissed that we, it's taken this long to do it. So my anger motivates me, um, but I'm encouraged by all the support we keep getting. Well, I absolutely love that. And you have channeled your, your anger and your energy uh, in such a, a wonderful way, a way that I do believe is going to impact both you gentlemen, um, channeling your, your energies in such a way it will impact 
our children and our children's children. I'm a, a wife, a mom, and a grandma, and I am constantly thinking about what can I be doing during my lifetime, because whatever I do or don't do during my lifetime will necessarily impact uh, the next generations coming. And I, I fully applaud everything that you guys are, are doing. And um, Rob Pincus, who is the firearms expert who was helping during the workshop people to better understand the actual physical tools themselves. And of course, uh, Reno Guns and Range. And I'm a firearms store owner myself. I would, in a heartbeat, welcome you gentlemen out. I don't have a range. Uh, I just don't have the space for a range. So I don't know if that would uh, necessarily count me in or out, but I just want to say that there is a willingness there. And just like you both had indicated, you didn't have to know that you had every single stone uh, turned uh, before you started taking the walk. Um, and so, uh, again, I think just expressing a willingness if there are other gun stores, other gun ranges out there across the nation listening to this, just express your willingness. Just reach out to Michael and Jake and let them know you have a willingness to get on board with this program and invite mental health um, professionals into your range and also yourself be willing to go to the classes that they're going to develop that help us better understand the mental health uh, community and their methods and their reasonings. Um, I think that uh, that is going to go a long way toward uh, building this bridge uh, and reducing the stigmas, uh, the stigmatizing language and uh, the biases that are out there. So again, thank you gentlemen so much for your time. You've spent a tremendous amount of time with us today. I can't wait to have future conversations with you. Uh, please use me as a resource to get any messages out that you uh, have about the ongoing um, programs that you're developing and the, the different layers of them. Uh, I, I just am just beyond blessed to know you both. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Cheryl. All right. So stick around. We've always got much more coming up on Gun Freedom Radio.